0: Do you like to win? Anybody here like to win? We all like to win. We love to identify ourselves with a winner, a winning idea, a, a winning political campaign, or winning candidate, a, a winning athlete, or a winning athletic team. As we enter March Madness, some of you are aware of that, it's the men's NCAA college basketball tournament, we are challenged to fill out brackets predicting... The winners, the winners. At the end of the day, we usually remember only the winner of a championship game, not even the runner-up. They were second. They lost. Uh, We remember, ah, the winner. That's what we remember. Well, having lived in Seattle for over 30 years, I remember one year, there's only one year, that the Seattle Mariners made it to the playoffs. And the whole city was obsessed with Mariner fever. When I walked into the grocery store, instead of elevator music, they were playing the broadcast of the game over the, the, the loudspeaking system. There was a, a whole city or region is impacted by a winning team. There's a there's a sense of pride, a sense of well being. An entire school can be impacted by one of their teams winning a state championship. And I know that Marcus had cross country championships in the state of Wisconsin. It just does an incredible amount for the school. One can sense the morale boost, the pride, the self confidence, the, the sense of well being when we win Whole cities will turn out to celebrate the victory of their team. The winner of the Super Bowl almost always has a parade and parties in the city in which they reside. We all love winners. But losers? If we're losing, we make jokes, we make excuses, we stay away from the games, we deny any association. A number of years ago, this is before the Seattle Seahawks had Mike Holmgren from Green Day Packers, there was a Seattle Seahawk fan that bought a dog. He bought a dog, and he brought his dog everywhere he went, and he especially enjoyed taking his dog to the local sports bar when the Seahawks were playing football on television. And the dog loved the Seahawks. When they got a first down, he would turn in circles. When he got, they got a field goal, he would flip over. And the man's friends were really impressed and said, wow, what does he, he do when they score a touchdown? And he said, I don't know. I've only had him two years. <laughs> we are fair weather friends, aren't we? Well, last week in Joshua, Israel was a winner. And we all left feeling great identifying with a winner. But life is not all one big win. Sometimes we lose. And Israel, after an incredible, dramatic, supernatural win at Jericho, the walls falling flat and they take the city, now face something totally different. Losing. Losing. Today, what caused the loss? How did they figure it out and what did they do about it? And then how we can turn defeat. Into victory Today, turning defeat into victory. Six lessons from a loss. And we're going to read part, portions of Joshua 7. It's on page 173. Uh, rather than read the entire chapter and a half, I'm going to read the first five verses, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell this, the rest of the story. So Joshua, Joshua 7, and we're going to read the first few verses, and then we'll talk through the story. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stones quarry and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted, and they became like water. There was sin in the camp. A man named Achan had disobeyed God's strict command to destroy the city of Jericho and turn in all the silver and gold to the Lord's treasury. Achan kept some of the silver and gold in a valuable valuable Babylonian robe that was supposed to be destroyed. Unaware, after a reconnaissance, Joshua decides to give most of his army the day off. And he sends only 3,000 men to conquer this small town of Ai. Okay. On the heels of a great victory, Jericho, Israel is totally defeated, totally routed. Thirty-six men die. And Joshua and all Israel are devastated. Joshua begins to question God. He said, why? Why did we lose? What, What happened? And God tells him, he said, there's sin in the camp. And then he gives him instructions on how to root it out, what to do. And they cast lots. This was a biblical lottery, by the way. This isn't the money lottery that we think about, but this was a biblical lottery that was practiced and overseen by God. And they found the offending party and punished the family, destroyed them according to God's command. Then was sin discovered and confessed as we go through this chapter and rooted out. God gives them a second chance and this time they win. Israel had turned victory... Into defeat. Now they turn defeat into victory. Let's see how and how we can turn defeat into victory. Six lessons from a loss this morning. Number one, number one, the sin of one affects the entire community. The sin of one affects an entire community. Now I don't believe Israel lost to AI the first time because Joshua is overconfident from the Jericho win. Nor did he lose because he forgot to pray to God. That would be reading into the text something that's not there. Israel could have defeated Ai with five men if they were right with God. They needed to learn that the people of God can only win over the power of the world as long as it was faithful to God's covenant. As long as it was faithful to God's covenant. And one guy, just one man, only one, Achan, broke the covenant and he disobeyed God. And this disobedience is is described as unfaithfulness. Now, most of us don't think about disobedience to God as unfaithfulness, but God calls this act of willful disobedience as unfaithfulness. It's like marital unfaithfulness is the breaking of the marriage vows, the marriage covenant, in the same way disobedience to God is a breaking of our covenant with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible equates disobedience or idolatry following other gods with something called spiritual adultery. It's the breaking of a covenant. They had an agreement. They had a covenant with God, and they broke the covenant. It was called unfaithfulness. And it's serious. It's serious. Why? Well, it's interesting. In verse 11, God's verdict is not Achan has sinned. We would say, man, Achan sinned. No. He said, Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. Achan's sin was imputed or is accounted against, charged against, attributed to the whole nation. Unfaithfulness. One man's sin was attributed to the entire community because the sin of one affects the entire community. His sin had polluted the whole nation. And even though God dealt with persons as individuals, each individual was part of the whole. See, it's the the concept that no man is an island. We are all interconnected. Everything we do affects someone else. We are part of a community. We are part of a society. We are part of a church. And the smallest unit of that society is the family. So if the sin of one affects all, how, how does it work out in family life? Well, let's talk about sin in the family. Dads, is there a hidden sin in your life? It's nitty-gritty stuff. Is there any hidden sin in your life as the dad? With the advent of the internet and electronic devices, one of the most common hidden sins for men is pornography. You cannot use pornography without seriously affecting the rest of your family. It's going to have an effect. Research and testimonials show us the devastating effects pornography has on the marriage relationship, loving an image rather than the real person. A real issue today. Maybe it's a problem with anger. Maybe it's an issue with self-control or materialism, hedonism, pleasure-seeking, self-centeredness, problem with bitterness. Maybe it's a problem with pride. If there is a sin we as fathers deal with, it will affect our entire family. It will affect our family. What about moms? Is there hidden sin in your life? One of the disturbing trends is the use of pornography among women. But what do you watch on TV? What do you read? What do you think about? What do you do? Even if it is in private, we can do nothing without infecting our entire family. Hidden sin. Hidden sin. The sin of one affects the entire community. What about students or kids? Is there sin, hidden sin in your life? The most common sin I see in families is rebellion against parents. And sometimes we hide that pretty good. But rebellion or any type of rebellion against parents will affect our entire family. Students cannot experiment with alcohol, drugs, or sex without affecting brothers and sisters, even parents. A lot of teens will say, I'm not hurting anyone. That's not true. It affects the family. Now, we all have areas where we are weak and we sin, but remember, the sin of one affects the entire community. And we're, we're in a battle. We know that. We are in a tremendous battle. And many families suffer defeat after defeat because one, maybe only one, is sinning in secret. The family is the smallest unit of our society. Protect, protect your family. Secondly, there's sin in the church, sin in the church. If there is one person in this church living in sin as a lifestyle, you are affecting the entire community. These are, these are private sins. Nobody knows about it. It's just, you know, it's between me and God. No, it's not. It may be sins that we already listed so common to all, but one of the most pervasive sins that we discovered, and it's, it's common throughout all churches And it was pervasive four years ago when we came to Eau Claire Westland. That was a sin of gossip. Sin of gossip. Slander. Talk about destructive. That's why if you go online and you look at our values statement, if you look at our values, mission and values statement, and I challenge you to do that, go to our website and look at number seven. It's the last one in our values statement. It's, It's called loyalty to the absent. Okay? Loyalty to the absent. And it, it says this, as followers of Jesus Christ, living his mandate to first love God and then to love others as ourselves, we express that love by refraining from gossip, pledging to speak to others directly, speak well of, or not speak at all. We will stop gossip at both our own mouth and our own ears by calling others into account to stop it's common. I bring it up every once in a while because it's really easy to get into. We can we, we can justify gossip, we can spiritualize it as a as a concern or a prayer, prayer need, prayer request. They're just one of those things, always being alert to that that particular sin. It can infect a community of believers and it can destroy a church. One of the ones I listed is a lack of faith lack of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Faithlessness. We start operating on what we can see and do. And we can live our life faithlessly. We can live our church life. We just don't, we don't need God. We just kind of show up and we do our thing. Whether God shows up or not, we don't really need him. It's, it's when we need God that we have to say, I need God again. Faith. We need faith. Then there's complacency. Complacency is so subtle because it's hard to find. It's hidden under a veneer. Spirituality, busy schedules, are our own priorities. God desires fervency, not complacency. He wants us to be hot, not lukewarm. Not lukewarm. Can you imagine having an email address address that's lukewarm.com? Or do you want hotmail.com? I want hot. You know, God wants us to be hot. Okay? In Revelation 3, 15, God takes the church at Laodicea to task because they are neither hot nor cold. They were just lukewarm. And you know, I think they were kind of comfortable. You know, we like comfortable. I like comfortable. I like to set the temperature so it's comfortable. I like the, the padded pews or padded seats. I like a, a car with air conditioning. You know, we like comfortable. And it, our lives, we are preoccupied and focused on comfortable. And comfort can, can be complacency. How do I know if I'm complacent? That's a question. No fervency in worship. No passion for the lost. People who don't know Jesus. No hunger for the word of God. No involvement in the life of, of others. No intensity in prayer. We may not have those great obvious sins, but complacency is a sin that can affect the whole church, the whole family. It can affect all of us. It's like a football team. Let's say the right guard or left tackle decides not to block with passion. He's kind of, yeah, whatever. They don't block with passion. Or the running back just kind of meanders towards the goal line. And the defensive back just kind of lets the pass receiver run past him. It affects the whole. One complacent player, just one, affects the entire team. And one of the things that we have to understand is that every one of us are important. God placed us in the body of Christ in large and specifically in this church to have a role. And complacency will destroy the church. Complacency. We all have a role. And then there's compromise, number three. Compromises to give, give up some demands or make some concessions, which sounds great if you're trying to get along in a family or you're negotiating a real estate deal. Okay, that's fine. But if we are with God, we cannot give up His demands. We cannot make concessions. We worship a holy God. That's His character. How do I know if I'm compromising? How do I know if I'm compromising? What are my standards? What are, what are my values? Am I qualitatively different than the world around me? Do I blend in so much that I'm just no different? And we're not talking about just externals. We're talking about internals. Internals. And then letter C, sin in our nation. Sin in our nation. I've been very clear in past messages as to sin in our nation. And let me just say, God is being very patient with us as a country. Now last week I had a, I had a very... Uh, very relevant question asked me, and I think, and I don't have time to be exhaustive about this or not. But but I want to just address it very very quickly because this this book of Joshua is about Israel coming in and destroying destroying people. He said, well, how how different is it um, that that they killed people in they probably even even children in Jericho, and that's against the law now? What what is the deal?" Let, let me just give some perspective because. What, what is God doing in all of these things? Is, is it justified? Are Israel's wars justified? Now, li- I've given a little bit more time in God's top 10. If you look it up, you can go back on the website. God's top 10, war and military service. We talk about just warfare, but we, can, we don't have time to go into all of that. But I want to talk about one particular concept. In Genesis 15, very interesting passage. And this has to do with God's grace and God's mercy in God's judgment, okay? In Genesis 15, it was, the, it was the promise that the land was given to Abraham. He said, he, he said to him, No, for certain the Lord said to Abram, He said, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. They were going to go to Egypt. He was was telling him, Here's the land that you belong, but you're going to go down to Egypt for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Egypt was punished by God for enslaving Israel. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For, here's the key word for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What did he mean by that? God was going to send judgment if the Amorites didn't repent. God, God did things throughout history. When, when evil was so pervasive, he would send judgment. Think about Noah and the ark evil was so bad, he destroyed everybody except Noah and his family. There are other times he sent judgment. And the Amorites were in the land 430 years, and they had become so evil that he needed to destroy them. And so he sent Israel in to destroy them and set up this nation Israel through whom the Messiah was going to come. Now, Israel, when Israel sinned too, here's the issue. And the nation of Israel went into Israel and Judah, two countries, basically, and they, they sinned. Now, God's grace was there. His mercy was there for them. And he would send prophets, and he warned them, and he warned them, and warned them, repent, or you will be sent into exile and destroyed. And they refused to repent, and so he sent the Babylonians in to judge them, and they were destroyed. And people were killed. The innocents were, were slaughtered. All kinds of things happened because they wouldn't repent. God's mercy and grace lasts a long time. But eventually he said, you're going to be... Then Judah also was sinning and God sent prophets against them, said, repent, repent. Worship the one true God. Don't do idolatry. They were sacrificing infants. They were doing all the same things the original Canaanites were doing. Finally God said, you're, I'm done. And he came in with the Babylonian army and he slaughtered them and took the rest into exile. God's grace in God's judgment, knowing that eventually they'd come back again. See, God uses foreign armies. The armies of the allied nations came in to destroy the Nazi Germany because it was an evil empire. Now, we'd think we'd have a better idea or a better way to do this, but human nature being what it is, sometimes God has to take those kinds of strict judgment on them. That's that's a real short course. This is like a whole seminary course you'd have to take to really understand. It's, there's a lot of detail in this. But, but that was a, it was a valid question. I wanted to at least give it some time this morning so that we understand why Israel was tasked with the, with the duty of coming in and cleansing the nation. They had been given 430 years to repent. They didn't. So God said, you'll be judged. That's God's method of judgment. It's different every time. But that case, it was this. Okay. So the sin of one affects the entire community. You remember where we are at? Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, number two, sin makes us totally vulnerable to the enemy. Makes us totally vulnerable to the enemy. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have made Liable to destruction. I will be with you, and I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. When we sin, we line up with the wrong power. We we line up with the enemy, and it makes us vulnerable, absolutely vulnerable. And rather than doing God's will, we do our will, or we do Satan's wishes, and that makes us vulnerable. And so, when we live in sin, or we hide sin, or we uh, sin on purpose and disobedience, you wonder. We wonder why. Why is my life? Destroyed. What's happening? It makes us vulnerable. Number three, humility and fervent prayer are the keys to discovering sin in our community. Humility, humility, and fervent prayer are the keys to discovering sin in our community. We see humility, first of all, in Joshua, uh, in, in verse 6, he tore his clothes, he fell on his face before God, he put dust on his head, and, and the elders and leadership joined him. These are all signs of humility. They humbled themselves, obviously, before God, and said something is wrong, they humbled themselves before God. And then they went into fervent prayer, secondly, fervent prayer. Fervent prayer has desperation. It has a a sense of incredible need. Praying with power and fervency. They were desperate. He wondered if God had sent them into the land of Canaan to just be totally destroyed. There was desperation in their prayer. In verse 7, there were the wise and if only. Why did you send us in if only this? It's a complaint before God. In verse eight, O oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. They will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? A question addressed to God. Do you ever ask God questions? It's okay. you ever ask God questions? Why? What's up? What, what, what is going on here? Ask him. Joshua doesn't demonstrate unbelief but simply the bold language of faith. He's, he's wrestling with God. and I don't know if you've ever wrestled with God. It's so desperate that your fervent prayer is actually wrestling with God. He says, why? What's happening? He's boldly seeking answers, asking tough questions of God. How do we discover sin in our own life? Humility and fervent prayer. How do we discover sin in our family? Humility and fervent prayer. How do we discover sin in our church? Humility and fervent prayer. How about our nation? Humility and fervent prayer. Now note note one thing. Joshua's main concern was not that Israel had been defeated, but that the name of Jehovah had been dishonored. God's name had been dragged into the dirt. Now our chief concern should not be whether we win or lose, but that the name of Jesus Christ be honored and glorified. Not, not are we making God look bad, but if we fail, we make the person of God look like a sham. It's a sham. Israel, the nation of Israel, they, they were God's people. They were God's chosen people, God's people. They were the visible demonstration to heathen nations how God loved and how God related to people. How God loved and how God related. The church today, we, are God's people. We are the visible demonstration as to how God loves and how he relates. Well, God answers the prayer of the leadership and reveal the sin. Lesson number four. Once discovered, sin must be confronted. Sin must be confronted. We start with confrontation. Verse 19. Verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give him praise. Tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. Confrontation. In Matthew 18, we read about one type of confrontation in the church. Verse 15 of Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell us to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The purpose of confrontation always is redemptive. It's not to make people feel bad. It's not to drive them out. It's to bring them back in to the church. The goal is restoration and in the church today we must confront sin that's one thing the church has done so poorly the sexual abuse that's occurred in the church and I'm not talking just about the catholic church I'm talking about the evangelical church many churches instead of disciplining and dealing with the sin usually sin and leadership instead of dealing with it they sweep it under the carpet and send the person off to a different parish or a different place so that they can, they can control their image. It's called image control. I've been doing this a long time, and I've seen time and time again where a church will hide the sin instead of bringing it to the surface, confronting it and confessing it so there can be healing and restoration, and they just get rid of it somehow. Never dealt with. The, the purpose is to restore but many times churches sweep it under the car- carpet, transfer the leader to another parish. Sin that is not confronted will weaken and pollute the church and render it powerless. Then we have confession. Confession, verse 20 and 21. Aiken says, I sinned. He says, I saw, I coveted, I took. There's a whole sermon right there. I saw, I coveted, I took. Confession. He actually confessed that he had no choice. And then confirmation. Now, letter C is confirmation of his sin followed. Joshua knew the consequences, the punishment, so he is very careful to confirm the facts. We must always be careful to confirm the facts before action is taken. You can see in the Matthew 18 passage, two or three witnesses always making sure that we have the facts. So it's not just one accuser or whatever. Always confirm the facts when we deal with sin. And once discovered, that sin must be confronted. Now, lesson five: the consequences of sin can be severe. The consequences of sin can be severe. Now people will say that was in the Old Testament. People had to pay for their sin back then. Now we live under the New Testament under grace. I'm not talking about paying for our sins. Uh, we can never pay for our sins. Okay? Just just let you know, we can never pay for our sin. I'm talking about the consequences, the consequences of our sin. People in the Old Testament could no more pay for their sins than we can now. In the Old Testament, the blood of animals was shed. There was a temporary solution to to pay for their sins. In the New Testament, Jesus died to pay for our sins once and for all, all persons for all times. Jesus paid for our sins. We can't pay for our sins. Jesus did that. But the consequences of our sin may continue. Look at the consequences of alcohol abuse, broken families, abused children. Drug use, destroyed lives, extra premarital sex, unwanted pregnancies, diseases, broken marriages. You can name all these sins. You can look at all the kinds of things that are the consequences of sinful behavior. God forgives all of our sin. Okay, just make sure that's clear. There's not one sin that God will not forgive. God will always forgive if we confess and ask him to forgive us. He'll forgive us. But the consequences may be severe. Consequences may be there. But we cannot pay for our sins. Jesus died to pay for our sins and to bring us to God. That's the good news. Jesus paid the price so we don't have to. He forgives unconditionally, no strings attached. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news. I've talked about spiritual breathing where, because I I don't know if you get through a whole day without sinning. I don't think I ever have. But basically, uh, you you confess that sin and breathe out the bad and breathe in the the appropriation of his forgiveness. Breathe out, breathe in. Confess, appropriate. Something that we have to do all the time. and, And as soon as you become aware of a sin, confess it. Breathe it out. And he'll forgive. That's the good news. Achan and his whole family had to die, but Jesus died for us to pay for our sins so we can live. Jesus died so we can live. So the sin of one affects the entire community. Sin makes us totally vulnerable to the enemy. Humility and fervent prayer are the keys. Once discovered, sin must be confronted. The consequences of sin can be severe. But number six, the good news, defeat can be turned into victory. Defeat can be turned into a victory. We don't have to to live in defeat. We are all sinners, okay? And I say that including me. We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace. God gives us a new start. We're not doomed to defeat forever. And when we lose, we're not doomed to failure forever. Because God wants to redeem it and turn that into victory. Once Israel discovered the sin, confronted the sin, confessed the sin, got rid of the sin, in chapter 8, this is like the second half of the game. They won. They won. Now note that the battle was fought in the physical realm, but the real battle was in the spiritual realm. And that's where it gets a little bit confusing sometimes. Because not only are we called to the spiritual realm, but we are called to engage also in the context of the physical realm but it starts in the spiritual realm. What is your battle right now? Maybe you've lost one. Maybe you just had a really bad defeat. Maybe a really bummer. God can take your defeat and he can turn it into a win again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that the word of God doesn't it doesn't mince words. It doesn't hide things. It doesn't put everything in a rosy glasses. You tell us the truth. And I just thank you that your truth is clear. And we thank you for the power of Jesus' resurrection, the power of what he accomplished on the cross. And, and God, that you can take our defeats, and make him into wins. You can, you can give us victory in the middle of that. And I just pray, God, that we would pray with David, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And God, that you would do that in each and every life today. In Jesus' name.